Amen. Would you give the Lord a praise offering today? All right. You can have a seat. Uh, we are so glad to have you with us. Those of you in the blue seats here and uh, those of you who are watching online, part of our local community, our global community, we're just glad to have you here. And I'm especially glad, uh, and I know he didn't want, really want me to say anything, but I'm especially glad to have my friend Jeremy Dixon uh, here. Some of you remember Jeremy. How many of you were here when Jeremy preached? Some of you remember the Jeremy story? Yeah, I know. I like, here's the comment I've gotten. Like, after Jeremy preached, and it's happened, it continues to happen. People continue to come up and go, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. And I said, you know, you've heard two years of sermons since then. Yeah, I know, but that was the best sermon that I've ever heard. And uh, for those of you that don't know Jeremy, uh, Jeremy's a, a dear friend. He's the pastor of Center of Hope out in Los Angeles. It's a church that we have had the privilege of just being able to partner with. Um, just one of the neatest guys that I know and uh, smartest guys that I know. And anything really, truly that I ever say that's kind of halfway profound, it probably came from Jeremy in some way. And uh, it's just been so special to be able to call him friend. So Jeremy, thank you so much for being with us today. Would you just show your appreciation again for Jeremy Dixon? He's out here with his family and uh, kids, and they're looking at colleges. They're doing that college tour thing that so many of you are kind of in the midst of doing uh, right now, and uh, so it's just so great to have him. So lots of stuff that's happening uh, in the life of our church. Uh, Kayla and Maddie uh, have some announcements to share with you, so take a look at this. Hey Fairfax, Maddie and I have a couple of quick announcements for you. First and foremost, we just really, really want to encourage you guys to get connected. Maddie and I actually met here at Fairfax and it has been one of the most amazing, amazing friendships that we have ever, ever had. So I would highly recommend getting plugged in. If you're new here, we seriously want to meet you. We're so excited. Stop by the welcome table in the lobby or click on the buttons on your screen. The same if you want to join a group, it is never a bad time to join a small group. We want to encourage you to do that. And lastly, to serve. Serving together, there is nothing like it. Any opportunity that we get to serve together is just some of my favorite memories that we have. So you can also find all of that information online or at the welcome table. And speaking of serving, we had the most amazing time with your kids last week at Camp Grow. It was awesome. One of my favorite parts was to see all of our old volunteers, our current volunteers, and new volunteers all come together to make it happen. We really could not have done it without you guys. And we can't do our weekend services without you either. So if you are interested in serving in Fairfax Kids, we would love to get connected with you. You can fill out the form online or you can find any of us at any point today. Child dedication is coming up super soon. It's about a month away. It is August 14th and 15th, and we have a really, really special service planned for you guys. We are so excited to celebrate. We have been waiting so long to do this, so we are super pumped to celebrate with you and your kids and your families. If you wanna register for that, you can do that online. The moment that all of you guys have been asking about and waiting for is here. Night of Worship is finally back. We're gonna do an end of the summer back to school night of worship on Wednesday, September 1st at 7 p.m. So save the date. Yeah, and you guys can bring your entire family. We will have childcare for um, nursery and preschool. So just register online for that if you're gonna bring everybody. Otherwise, we will expect to see you guys in the service. That is all the announcements we have for you guys today. Enjoy the service. 
All right, so a lot of cool stuff is happening around here, even in the middle of the summer, getting ready for uh, the fall. All that's possible because of, uh, of you guys and your generosity. And I, I continue to say, I've been saying it through the last 16 months as we've gone through this weird season where for part of the time we couldn't worship together and then have slowly began to kind of come back and all, all of that, just that what has been so steady and so uh, faithful has been your generosity um, to this place. And I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, one of our core values is, uh, is generosity. You live that out in so many ways, not just financially, but certainly you live it out in your support of this place. So thank you so much for that. If you want to give us an act of worship, if you're watching online, there's a little button there that says give. You can start the process there. If you're here in the sanctuary, uh, there are boxes in the back of the sanctuary you can use. You can put your tithes and offers in there or you can text uh, to give uh, as well. So thank you so much for your support. So we're in week two of this eight-week series that we're doing in Revelation, uh, spending two months in the book of Revelation, and, and still it's not going to be enough to really do and talk about everything we need to talk about. It's 22 chapters, the book of Revelation. We're going to average like two or three chapters a week, and some weeks we'll, uh, we won't get to every single chapter, but hopefully... This is my hope, is that when we get to the end of this time, it will give you a kind of a, an overview, a, a kind of an opportunity to get a sense of what Revelation is all about, just so that in your study, you'll be able to go deeper in looking at this amazing, amazing book. And uh, I hope that you'll be reading through the book. This will be helpful uh, if you read through while we're going through it. I think it will help to kind of explain some things that you're, that you're going through. So one of the things that I mentioned last week uh, is that there are three really important things you have to understand about Revelation if you're going to get anything out of it. And I know this is kind of review if you were here last week, but I'm probably going to keep saying this over and over again because these three things are so central or you just get lost in the book of Revelation. One is this. That Revelation is a letter. It's a letter just like the letters that Paul wrote to the churches that he helped to start at Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and all the other places where he started churches. This is a letter that is written to a particular group of people at a particular time in history around the turn of the century, 96 AD, somewhere in that range, who are going through a particular set of circumstances. In this particular case, it's seven churches that are located in what is now modern-day Turkey and are going through some incredible, unspeakable kinds of persecution. And the reason that it's so important to understand that it's a letter is because it keeps us from interpreting, those of us living in the 21st century, it keeps us from interpreting the book of Revelation in a way that could only make sense to someone living in the 21st century. And sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes the book of Revelation gets interpreted in a way that it only makes sense right now because we go, well, here's what's happening in the Middle East or here's what's happening in some other part of the world. And, and this refers to the you know, Apache helicopters and this refers to the vaccine that everybody's like all this crazy stuff that it's like it only makes sense if you're interpreting it in the 21st century. And if you interpret Revelation that way, then there's no way it could have made sense to the original audience, to people who were being exposed to it in the 5th century, the 12th century, the 18th century, 19th century, whatever. And how cruel, think about how cruel would that be for God to give a message to these churches 
that are going through all of this incredibly difficult stuff, all of this persecution, and it have nothing to do with what they're actually going through. It just doesn't make sense. Scripture is the timeless, authoritative word of God, which means that it has to be relevant to every generation. It has to be relevant to the original audience. It has to be relevant to the folks in the 5th century, the 10th century, the 12th century, the 18th century. It has to be relevant. You cannot interpret it in a kind of way where it basically was irrelevant for 2,000 years, and now all of a sudden, because of something we see happening in the world, now it becomes relevant. That's why you have to understand it was a letter written to a specific group of people at a specific time dealing with a specific set of circumstances. Secondly, you have to understand that Revelation is a book that simply cannot be read chronologically. Like if you try to read Revelation as a series of linear events that happen one after the other, you will get completely and totally confused. You have to think of Revelation as a series of windows that you are looking through, different windows that you are looking through, seeing the same reality, but described in a different way and from a different perspective. So the question when you read Revelation, you have to ask yourself is not what happens next. You can't get to chapter five and go, oh, I wonder what happens next. You get to chapter seven and go, oh, I wonder what happens next. The question is not what happens next. The question is what does John see next? What does John hear next? And what he sees next and what he hears next is not necessarily something that is happening in chronological order to what he has already seen or what he has already heard. That's the second thing. Third thing you have to keep in mind is that Revelation is a part of a genre of literature that is known as apocalyptic literature. Revelation means apocalypse. It means to unveil. It means to reveal something. And in apocalyptic literature... It's just kind of weird, like people are often represented as animals, historical events are represented oftentimes as natural phenomena like earthquakes or floods, colors have meaning, numbers have meaning. You need to think of apocalyptic literature the same way that you think about poetry or the way that you think about music or the way that you think about a movie that you watch. All of those art forms are not just about engaging your minds. They also are about igniting your spirit. Like you don't read a poem, you don't go to a movie, you don't watch a movie, you don't read a novel, whatever it is. You don't do that just to learn something. You do that to feel something, to feel something in your soul. And that's what apocalyptic literature does. It ignites the spirit. It causes you to feel something. And it's like I was talking about last week. Like when your life has been turned upside down and everything's falling apart, everything's unraveling, you're not sure like you can make it to the next day. Like you don't just need to learn something or to know something. You need to feel something. You don't need someone to just come to you and go, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. There's hope. Oh, thank you for that. Like that really helps me right now. You need to feel like there's hope. You need to have a sense within you, something that ignites your spirit that says there is hope. And that's what apocalyptic literature is all about. That's why you have all this crazy imagery, all of this, because it's not just about informing us. It's about helping to ignite our spirit. Now, last week, we looked at chapters uh, one through three, and it is the part in the book of Revelation 
that feels the most like a letter. So if you've read, never read Revelation before and you went, oh, you know, I hear there's all this weird imagery and all this stuff that's kind of spooky and scary. And, uh, and then, then you started to read it and you read chapters one, two, and three, which is what we covered last week. You went like, well, what's the big deal? Because it has an introduction. It, it's directed to these seven churches. Jesus gives this very clear message to the seven churches. And he tells each of the churches there's something to commend. There's something to celebrate that's going on in the church. That's awesome. And then there's something to confront. There's something that needs to change. There's something that needs to be repented of that's going to the church. Just seems like kind of a natural kind of letter. Seems like the kind of letter that Paul actually could have written. But then get to chapters four and five. And now we kind of jump into the apocalyptic language and all of that. And this is the first window that John looks through. And the first thing John sees, the first thing that Jesus reveals to him as he looks through the window is this. And we're just going to look at a big chunk of scripture and we'll kind of unpack this. This is Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. After this, John says, remember it's a vision that God has given him. After this, I looked and there before me was a door Standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow resembling an emerald and circled the throne and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne, this throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were seven lamps that were blazing. And these are the spirits of uh, God, the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal that was surrounding the throne. In the center around the throne were these four living creatures. This must have freaked John out. These four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and eyes in the back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all over, all around, even under the wings. And day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. So the first thing John sees is this throne. And it's not just, it's not just any throne. As John describes what he's seeing, you become aware that all creation has has turned their attention to this throne. All creation, all the universe is, is bowing before and worshiping the one who is on this throne. There's these weird creatures, right? These weird creatures with six wings who are entirely covered with eyes, who have all turned their attention to the throne, who are circling the throne. One's like a lion. One's like an ox. One's like a human being. One's like an eagle. And as you get that visualization, you realize that it's not just humanity that has turned its attention to the throne, that it's all of creation that has turned its attention to the throne. Everything in the universe has turned its attention to the throne, the whole created order. It's this visualization of the kind of thing that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 98, 
when he says this. And sometimes we read this and we don't connect it with this visualization that John is getting where the psalmist says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, all the earth shout for joy, burst into jubilant song with music. Let the sea resound. Let the sea praise the Lord. Let the sea worship the Lord. Let everything in it, in the world, all who live in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing songs of joy. Or in Isaiah 55, same thing. Part of this is a little song that we used to sing probably in church, in church maybe when you were growing up. You will go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. All creation, that's the image, that's the vision that John gets, is all of creation turning its attention to the throne, worshiping the one who is on the throne. And then surrounding this one throne are these 24 other thrones. And those who are seated on these thrones have, have turned their attention to the throne. They've turned their attention to the one who is seated on the throne. Remember, in apocalyptic literature, numbers have meaning. And most commentators say that the 24 thrones represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. They represent the primary instruments that God has used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to advance his kingdom, his kingdom mission in this world. And they have all turned their attention. They each have their own little thrones, but they've all turned their attention to the one throne, to the one who is on this one throne. It's a reminder that even though they've been used by God to advance the mission, they are not the focus of the mission. They get the idea that, yes, we've been used by God to advance his mission. We have our own little thrones. We have our own little platforms, but we are not the focus of the mission, that God is the focus of this mission. Sometimes when we are used by God in, uh, in powerful ways, um, you know, we, uh, God uses us to to speak a word to someone at just the right time and, 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 and it has a huge impact on their lives. They say, you'll never know what it meant when you said that and it just kind of changed the trajectory of my life or God uses us to, to organize things or to lead things and, and other people follow or God uses us to speak in ways that people can understand and communicate the mission of the kingdom, whatever it is. Sometimes when we are used in really, really powerful ways, to advance the kingdom. We begin to think that somehow this is about us. Like this is all about how gifted we are, how smart we are, how strategic we are, how smart we are, how whatever, how charismatic we are, how good we communicate, whatever it is that this is about us, but it's not about us. Like whatever little throne, whatever little platform that God has given you, when it's rightly positioned, that's the question. It's not that we don't have these little thrones. It's not that we shouldn't have these platforms that God can use to advance the kingdom. That's how he advances the kingdom is through the platforms that he gives us, the gifts, the talents, the passions, the abilities to advance. But when they are rightly positioned, they are focused on the throne. They are focused not on their platform. They are focused not on their own little throne. They are focused on the one who sits 
on the throne. And then the other thing that John sees is all of this beauty that surrounds the throne. There's this beautiful rainbow that resembles emerald that encircles the throne. There is this beautiful majestic lightning that lights up everything around the throne. There is this sea of glass that looks like beautiful crystal that is all around the throne. And there is the beauty of God's Holy Spirit that surrounds the throne. That's the seven spirits of God. Sometimes people read that seven spirits of God. What's the tell There's seven Holy Spirits. No, remember in apocalyptic literature, numbers mean something. Number seven refers to perfection. It refers to holiness. It refers to that which is heavenly. And so when it talks about the seven spirits of God that surround the throne, it's talking about the the beautiful, beautiful, holy presence of God's Holy Spirit that is there surrounding the throne. So there's all this beauty that surrounds the throne. It's as if the throne makes everything in its presence beautiful. Everything that turns its attention to the throne, everything that worships the one on the throne becomes beautiful. Eugene Peterson describes it this way. In worship, every sign of life, Every impulse to holiness, every bit of beauty, every spark of vitality, the Hebrew patriarchs, the Christian apostles, wild animals, domesticated livestock, human beings, soaring birds are arranged around this throne center that pulses with light, showing each at its best, showing each at its best, picking up all the colors of the spectrum in order to show off the glories. Don't miss what Peterson is saying there and what the vision that John is seeing is declaring there is declaring that around the throne, everything that God has created, including us, is seen in its reality, is seen as it really is. It's seen as beautiful. It's seen as glorious. That's why it's so important to understand that this worship scene that John is seeing is not something that is going on out there in the future sometime that will happen. Jesus is not saying to this group of persecuted Christians, this group of people who are struggling to hold on, who are just trying to figure out some way to get to the next day, who are just holding on by a thread. He is not saying to them, hang in there. Because thousands of years from now, God is going to be on his throne. And all of those who worship him are going to be made beautiful in his presence. And they're all going to be made glorious in his presence. So hang in there. Thousands from years from now, that's going to happen. No, Jesus is saying, this is the way it is right now. This is going on right now. You can't see it because of all the brokenness in the world. You can't see it because of the brokenness in your own life and the pain in your own life and the struggle in your own life. But this is happening right now. This is a scene that is happening. This is reality you can't see, but is going on right now. That's what Jesus is saying over and over again in Scripture. Scripture describes this veil, this kind of veil, this type of veil that separates heaven from earth. And we're reminded of it over 
and over again. It reminds us that heaven is not something that's just going to happen out there in the future someday, or heaven is not just something that you experience when you die. It reminds us that heaven is a a present reality. It reminds us that heaven is all around us. There's a song that we sing that declares heaven is all around. That's what it's talking about, that heaven is this reality that is all around. It's just that in the midst of this broken world, we cannot see it in all of its fullness. Now, what's interesting is that I think there's something deep within the heart of almost every human being whether they've connected the dots, whether they know who Jesus is, whether they uh, know the Bible, whether they've ever read, whatever. I think there's something deep within the heart of every human being that kind of senses that there is this other reality that is present that you cannot see, but it's real and it's now. And I think that's why probably there's all of these writers that write all these movies that we watch and all these television shows that we binge on that oftentimes include, they weave that kind of thing into the things that they're writing. And that's why I think so many people watch those shows and love those shows. One of those popular shows on Netflix for quite a while, I think a new season is getting ready to come out, um, is the show uh, Stranger Things. Anyone want to admit that they've watched uh, Stranger Things? Okay. And the rest of you, God forgives you for lying. Okay. So, because everyone basically has seen Stranger Things. So, in Stranger Things, if you know anything about Stranger Things, there is this upside down world, this upside down world that is profoundly different than the world that everyone can see. And most people can't see it except for this little small, this little group, this little group of kids who, who I think are 25 now, but are playing 12-year-olds uh, in the show. Um, but just because people can't see it doesn't mean that it's not real. It's real. It's there. Now, I don't know if the writer of Stranger Things is familiar with Revelation. I don't know if the writer of Stranger Things is familiar with Scripture, but that concept is right out of Scripture. Because Jesus, through John, is revealing these seven churches and to us this upside-down reality, this reality that is different than this broken, sinful world, this reality that is different from what we are experiencing here, this reality that is unseen but is present and is real, is not visible, but it's real, and it's now. And when you get to the end of Revelation... We're told that one day, so you get to chapters 20, 21, 22, and, and, and we're going to get there in the series. Uh, when you get there, you, you are told that this veil, eventually this veil gets removed. And, and heaven and earth become one like a bride and a groom on their wedding day. It's beautiful imagery. It's one of the reasons that throughout Scripture, you have all this imagery of the bride and the groom because you get to the very, very, very end of the book and we're told that there's coming a day when that veil that separates heaven and earth, this two realities that are both present and both real and both now, this veil is removed and heaven and earth become one like a bride and a groom on their wedding day. But here's what John is reminding us and what Jesus through this vision is reminding us of in chapters four and five. The message of Revelation is that we don't have to wait. 
We don't have to wait to chapters 21 and 22. We don't have to wait. We're invited to enter the throne room and worship the one who sits on the throne right now. And unlike the narrative of Stranger Things, it's not just a select few individuals who are invited into this present but unseen reality. All of us are invited into this present but unseen reality. Do you understand like what that means, like the implications of that? It means that every time we worship, you know, we, we, just, we come in, we do this thing, and worship is more than just what's happening here, and we're gonna talk about that, but we come in, we do this thing, we sing, we listen, we hear, all of that, and I think, and myself included, that oftentimes because of the routine of coming together, we simply do not think about what is really going on when we participate in what we are participating in here. Because every time we worship, we get a glimpse of what John is describing. Every time we worship, we get to make visible what is not visible. Every time you worship, you get to see yourself for who you really are. Every time you worship, you get to see your true beauty, the beauty that the enemy does not want you to see, the beauty that is hidden by the ugliness of the world, but in the presence of the one who sits on the throne. When we come into the presence of the one who sits on the throne and we turn our attention to the throne, we see ourselves for who we really are. Most of the time through the week, we do not see ourselves for who we really are. But when we worship and turn our attention to the throne, you see yourself for who you really are. The beautiful one that God has created. The glorious person that God has created. Every time we worship, heaven and earth collide. And we enter into this sacred space. You know, we talk, we use the word sacred so loosely. This building is not sacred. This sanctuary is not sacred. What is sacred is the intersection the collision of heaven and earth. It's when heaven and earth collide. It's when we come into the presence of the one who is sitting on the throne. That is sacred space. It's the collision of heaven and earth. Now, you get to chapter five, and we're reminded this intersection of heaven and earth, this collision that takes place where heaven and earth come together, and there's this sacred intersection that happens. It's made possible because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's not just something that we can do. It's not just something that we can make up or construct. It happens because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is what John sees next. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one, no one, no one on earth, no one in heaven, no one under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says, I wept and I wept and I wept. I was overcome 
with sorrow that no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, the scroll, as we'll see in chapter six and seven, we're going to look at next week. In, in essence, it's the declaration of where you find life. <laughs> it, it's the declaration of where you find meaning, where you find purpose, where, where you find life. And, and we are the ones in this vision, we are the ones that cannot open the scroll. Like we are the ones who cannot give ourselves life. We are the ones who cannot give ourselves meaning. We are the ones who cannot give ourselves purpose in life. We are the ones who cannot create this space where heaven and earth collide. Now we try, we try, like we try to open the scroll. We would probably never put it in that language, but it's exactly what we're doing. We try to open the scroll by all kinds of things. We try to open the scroll by being successful. We try to open the scroll by accomplishing a bunch of stuff. We try to open the scroll by earning a lot of money. We try to open the scroll by performing well morally or academically or physically. Like We have a lot of folks that live in this area that would never use this language and have no idea of those kind of spiritual realities, but that's exactly what they're doing. Like trying to, maybe exactly what some of us are trying to do. is like trying to open the scroll by all of this. And sometimes we try to open the scroll with things that are relatively positive. Sometimes we try to open the scroll with less healthy things like alcohol or pornography or inappropriate relationships or, or whatever it is. Either way, we can't open the scroll. We can't give ourselves life. And we try. Like even, like we, we so thirst for life. We so thirst for just a moment where we feel something alive that we will engage in almost anything, no matter how destructive it is over the long haul, if for that moment, it will give us just this sense of living and this sense of being alive. Like we will, we so want life, we will turn to almost anything to try to get Life, But ultimately, and this is why John is weeping, ultimately it will not bring us life. Ultimately, it will not open the scroll. But then, then, get excited about this. But then, in verse 5, John is told this. John, do not weep. In fact, the translation I actually love is the one that says, John, weep no more. Like, stop your crying, stop your weeping. Why? Because of this. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus has done what we cannot do. He has done what all the money in the world cannot do, what all the houses in the world cannot do, what all the remodeled kitchens in the world cannot do, what all the accomplishments in the world cannot do, what all the success in the world cannot do, what all, what all of the unhealthy self-medicating in the world cannot do. He has opened the scroll. He has unlocked the one thing that gives our life purpose, the one thing that gives our life meaning. Through his death on the cross, he's made it possible for heaven and earth to collide and for us to be in the intimate presence of the holy God because by taking on our sins, he has made us 
holy. That's what the gospel at its core is all about, is by taking on our unholiness. He has made us holy so we can enter into this sacred collision between heaven and earth. By taking on our ugliness, he has allowed us to take on his beauty so that we can enter into this sacred space where heaven and earth collide, and we are in the presence of the holy God. So not only is worship turning our attention here, let me just give you a definition because when we talk about worship, we always kind of reduce it down to what we do when we come in this place. But according to revelation, revelation is, uh, worship is not just what happens in here. When we gather in this room, like once a week for an hour or so, like worship involves the totality of our lives. Worship is what happens. Here, here's a great working definition of what happens, what worship is. Worship is what happens. Whenever we turn our attention away from this, whatever this is, and turn our attention to the throne, that's when worship happens. Worship happens anytime, wherever you are in this place, when you sing, whether you're just going through the motions or whether you are really turning your attention away from this and turning your attention to the one who sits on the throne. But worship happens out there. Worship happens every time we turn our attention from this and turn our attention to the one who is sitting on the throne. So it's not only something that happens when we're singing. Worship is also turning your attention to the throne in our marriage, right? So that we begin to see our husband or we begin to see our, 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 our wife through heaven's eyes rather than through our eyes. Worship is turning our attention to the throne in our job. So we begin to see what we're doing and why we're doing it through heaven's eyes rather than through our own eyes. Worship is turning our attention to the throne in the way that we handle our money. So that we begin to see everything that God has entrusted to our care through heaven's eyes and not through our own eyes. That's what worship is. And then this whole vision of worship ends with John seeing this. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth who have turned their attention, every creature turning their attention on heaven and on earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Let me just wrap this up today. As we continue this journey by asking you this question, like in your life, is Jesus worthy? And, and, and I don't just mean like, is he worthy in some ethereal kind of sense? Because I know you don't show up for church. You don't, you don't watch this stuff. You, if you don't have this kind of general sense, of course, Jesus is worthy. And yes, we can sing the songs and all of that. And so, yeah, I give affirmation of that. I don't mean just that. I don't mean, is he just kind of worthy in this kind of ethereal sense? I mean, is he worthy in the sense that you are joining with all creation to turn your attention towards him? Are you turning your attention towards him in your marriage? Are you turning your attention towards him in your relationships? Are you turning your attention 
towards him in the way that you deal with the struggles and challenges and, and, and difficult times that you are facing? Are you turning your attention? Are you joining with the reality of all creation? Are you joining with the reality of what is happening all around you that you cannot see? Are you joining with all creation and in every area of your life, turning your attention towards the throne? Or are there areas of your life where you are the one who is still trying to open the scroll? Like areas of your life where you're still trying to fix what is broken, areas where you're still trying to find life in something else, or you're trying to find purpose in something else, or you're trying to find meaning in something else, or you're trying to find redemption and restoration and healing in something else. And if there is, Jesus invites you. That, that, that's really the message that we bump up again over and over and over again in Revelation. It's just, it's, it's just this invitation. Jesus invites you to turn your attention away from whatever else is happening. Whatever wall needs to come down to turn your attention away from the wall and onto the throne. Jesus invites you into his throne room. Jesus invites you into this sacred space where heaven and earth collide. Jesus invites you to worship the one on the throne who is, who is holy and can redeem and can restore you and can give you purpose and meaning, can heal you, can make you whole. There's healing that is present in the throne room. There's healing that takes place when heaven and earth collide in this sacred space. And Jesus says, I invite you in to this space. God, we're so thankful. We get so overwhelmed and surrounded and just, I don't know, caught up into the realities of this broken world that we forget sometimes where we are. It becomes normal. We've normalized the brokenness of the world. And we forget that there is something more. Not just something more that is out there. Something more that is here. Right now. That we get a glimpse of. Every time we turn our attention to you. And so Lord, may we. May we turn our attention to the one who sits on the throne in this space, but beyond this space, in every 
area of our life, every relationship of our life, every part of our life. May we turn our attention to the throne. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.